Hello everyone, it's Friday the 10th of March and welcome to episode 145 of the Kite Podcast with me, Will Evans. And me, Ben Eagle. Now, today's episode is dedicated to a man who has rightly been widely described in the farming press as a giant of the dairy industry. Whether it was as a quota broker, columnist in Dairy Farmer magazine, which he did for 25 years, a commentator and reporter through his own weekly bulletin, or as a farmer in his own right, he lived and breathed the dairy sector. We are, of course, talking about Ian Potter who died suddenly on Monday of last week after medical complications following a short illness. He was 62. Ian made his impact on the industry in so many ways. And as Chris said in last week's episode, he was hugely respected right across the industry due to his gritty desire to expose the truth. He wasn't afraid to challenge or to stand up for what he believed was the right thing. To discuss Ian's life and career and relay some memories, we're joined today by Kite Director John Allen, Managing Director of Arla Foods UK, as well as the Board Chair of Dairy UK, Ash Amaramadi, our Podcast Producer and Senior Consultant at Kite, Becky Lee, and as always, everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Walkland. Chris, let's go over to you first of all for the Milk Market Report. Where are you this week? Well, after Europe's second warmest winter ever, it has been snowing almost everywhere. I haven't picked up much comment on abandoned milk collections, but everyone does go above and beyond in such times. So hats off to our heroes and heroines clearing roads and yards and generally doing tankering stuff. And I'm bringing you my report from out in the cold, wild wilderness and doing what any self-respecting dairy market analyst would do. And that's woozle hunting. Yeah, so what's woozle hunting? Well, a woozle is what Winnie the Pooh and Piglet go hunting for in the snow one day. They don't see one, but they do see tracks in the snow and keep following them, comforted by the knowledge that someone in front knows exactly where they're going. They don't see anyone, of course, but they do see more and more tracks in the snow. Thus, they carry on going inevitably round and round in circles. And that brings me perfectly on to my market report, because that's exactly where the market is right now. Traders are hunting for something they can't find, i.e. a direction. And just like Winnie the Pooh and Piglet in the snow, they're going round and round in circles, not getting anywhere fast. The big hope was that the GDT might set some sort of a direction of travel this week, but it failed to do so, being down just 0.7%. Most commodities dropped a bit in price. Cheddar crashed over 10%. So not a good result at all for that. In Europe, the market maker Dutch Butter dropped 50 euros to 4,800 euros this week after posting four weeks of nice, steady gains. But the move was in line with expectations as the spot price has dropped back this week. Buyers have evaporated again. Uh, skim milk powder is also stable at 2,600 euros. So another week goes by without any progress being made. Uh, cream is relatively stable here at between £1.60 to £1.65, so no major change. 
Apparently, it's crashed on the continent, though, to below £1.60. And we're back where we were on the EU futures, I'm afraid, with all the gains since late February now lost. Prices are down €300 Euros compared to two weeks ago and down around 150 on the month. But it's a different story for New Zealand futures. They're up €250 Euros on two weeks and €450 Euros on the month. And because of that, there's a very narrow gap between North and Southern Hemisphere prices, the narrowest it's been in months. So that might help to support the market. Uh, EU, butter and skim uh, still combine to a milk price in the low 30s, though. On cheese, again, the story is stability, although the Dutch traders are less active in the market now than they were. And some of the silly prices being quoted have dried up. Uh, mozzarella is similar to what it was about 2,800 sterling, maybe slightly up, but nothing major. And curd is similar to what it was at 3,600 sterling. So again, a mid-30s milk price based on those. But it's still very tough out there, I hear. One processor has only managed to pay half of its milk checks due to cash flow issues. I did warn at the CMEX conference that the biggest issue the industry faces now is the huge disparity between milk prices and commodity prices. And this is another example of those challenges, I think. And the disparity between commodity prices and milk prices is still too high, I'm afraid. More price cuts for you will be coming along, I fear, unless the situation changes. Uh, finally, spot milk is at around 36p, but some cheesemakers don't even want to pay 30p. Uh, I don't think much is being traded, but the cold weather might give liquid processes a boost as people drink proper cups of tea and coffee instead of their poncy soya sewage juice. <laughs> so that's it. I think the big question is now is whether the big freeze over Europe will put the kibosh on volumes. We can but hope. Certainly not going to do any good if it lasts, least of all in Ireland, where the cows have been out since mid-February, and the grass, well, it's not going to grow very much, is it, these days? Goodbye. Thank you, Chris. Uh, you've you've got some news for us about Ian's celebration of life to share. Uh, can you tell us more, please? Yeah, the celebration of Ian's life and his contribution to the industry is being held on the 29th of March at the Staffordshire Showground at 12 noon. The invitation is open to everyone who knew Ian, but the family requests that those who wish to do so tell them via a link that's on Ian Potter's website. So that's www.ipmsltd.co.uk. There's no formal dress code, uh, so please feel free to wear colour if you wish and no flowers. But if you would like to give a donation, contributions will go to the work of Glenfield Hospital in Leicester. Uh, again, the donation link is on the website. So we look forward to seeing uh, a lot of people there. Okay. Thank you, Chris. 
Um, John, you probably knew Ian longer than most uh, and would have worked closely with him on quota issues. Um, it says here some of the younger listeners, as well as me, Becky and Ben, won't even remember quotas, but I do. <laughs> I do remember quotas very, very well. I was trying well. to be nice to you, Will. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. I do I do remember quotas very, very well. And I remember certainly uh, in my young farming career, and I remember sort of my mum and dad sort of, you know, sitting down at the, at the kitchen table and talking um a lot about quotas it seemed to be a really big thing as dairy farmers back in the day but um can you take us back to those days john and and tell us about quotas explain how and why ian was so dominant in that era which ultimately uh propelled him into the dairy limelight for 30 years i do like how i get portrayed as this old man <laughs> tell tell us about the olden days john go on (laughs) it is it is a classic yeah it's a classic thing we do (laughs) well all right when you've asked for it i'll give you both barrels now i mean now (laughs) i do actually for those who wouldn't know me and ian hailed from the same uh we were born within probably 10 miles of each other and uh near ashbourne in derbyshire and uh we're also uh, sad souls, uh, Derby fans, although I think he he gave up on Derby in the end and went off to follow England. Uh, but uh, I, I, I guess we always had a close tie. We didn't know each other as child, as children, I hasten to add. But, but I did come across him uh, at a dinner and uh, got to know him, and, and I knew of him. And um, what you've got to do is yeah, you have to remember that Ian was trained. I, can't, I think he was a Sirencester boy, but anyway, you probably would know that, would you, Chris? Yeah, uh, he was, yeah. Yeah, and and of course, in those days, they were agents and they're all supposed to have pink uh, trousers and tweed jackets. And still do. Still do. He was gruff and he was Derby and he was Derbyshire and he was from and, – and, and so, therefore, he was mm. – and uh, he didn't fit the mould at all of being a Bagshaw's agent. So he was actually the first comprehensive student to go to the Siren Sister, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, how the heck really. did he get in? Wow. wow. Yeah. So, because so of course, you know, but he did have a brain, and that's probably what made him different. Uh, sorry, I don't. Milan <laughs> <laughs> agents. But. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe edit that bit out. What a former Harper Adams student here loving this. Keep <laughs> the land agent bit in. <laughs> but anyway, just to right. So, so, so what? What's this maverick like then? So, this maverick, of course, didn't want to sell calves in a Utopia market for Bagshaws, and when quotas came along, he decided there was something there that he could actually get into, and he used his brain. And to be fair, there was others there. Who were who've been in the market before uh, getting the quota market off? But Ian set out by himself to 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 do his own thing, and he he is what I would call a uh, a, a, a disruptor, uh, a market disruptor, a creative disruptor. Because what people like Ian did, and he was a I would call him a bit of a English or, or British bulldog. It, that's the type of type of character he was. He was in your face and a bit bit uh, brutal. But what he did is that he decided he would do it. And actually, what's 
what he did is help create the quota market. And for better or for worse, and you talked about quota markets, it existed for quite a long time. And characters like Ian did actually enable us in the UK to have a quota market and have quota trade. Now, a lot of people will talk about that and Chris will say how good or bad that was. But actually, relative to our European competitors, we were quite good at trading quota. And that enabled our industry to adapt probably better than a lot of our European competitors. So it's a bit of the British spirit to be a bit, we'll do things a bit different and we'll keep a market. And we did keep a market in quotas. And that enabled the UK dairy industry to actually uh, adapt during that quota era. And I would say that he played his part in that, in actually helping the UK dairy industry actually improve, although people would argue with me about that and quotas and what value was created. Yeah, he he dominated it, but um, he didn't actually want to do milk quotas. At first, he got into quotas because his auntie Nancy in Yorkshire had a couple of acres or a couple of hectares of potato quota. So she asked him to put an advert in Farming News to sell her potato quota. And he got 20 or 30 responses to his potato quota advert. And he thought, hello, there's a market here. Uh-huh. But he was doing so well out of potatoes, he didn't want to do dairy. But he was convinced to do it. And the rest, as they say, is, is history. And he was extremely professional about how he went about building his business. Mm. Um, and he was, as you say, a, a disruptor. Um mm. You know, I was told the other day that we had a strap line. We, I was doing his PR at the time, and we had a strap line, Ian Potter, the only name for quota. And he was apparently taken to the advertising standards by arrival because there were more names than um, Ian Potter for quota. And the story goes, whether it's right or not, I don't know, that it was mentioned in that in those proceedings that red bull actually doesn't give you wings <laughs> <laughs> which is why one of the reasons why red bull has to spell wings with two eyes now now whether it's right or not i don't know but he was he was a disruptor milk quotas could only be traded really in the uk much to the envy of other companies exactly other other countries but of course, this didn't stop Ian, and he was approached by Italian farmers to actually trade quotas between the UK and Italy, which was not allowed. You know, under EU rules, it was not allowed. But nevertheless, he thought, well, we're going to have a go at this, sensing that the political will in Europe was just on the wane as far as quota was concerned. So they did some quota deals between the UK and Italy, which which were not challenged by the European Union. I don't know what the outcome of those were, but it's another example of how he took that industry, that market by the horns and, and really shook it up. Just Just to remind people as well what it was like, um, we, uh, we, 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 when we, I was originally with ADAS and then we started Kite, and when, when we used to have meetings and we used to talk about quotas and what the likely milk production was likely to be, so you'd have a meeting with, I don't know, 20 consultants in a room. And at the end of the meeting, you could almost guarantee that 
that the phones would be on the way back in the cars, all the way back for clients. And, and, and that meeting would shift milk quotas by five or 10 pence a litre. That's what it did, because people all got a move one way or other. And of course, Ian was always there ready to play his part in actually helping the trade. So he was great. And in terms of, uh, you, he, he was always very straight, I have to say. Uh, that, that isn't to say there was anything uh, malpractice or anything. He was very, very straight. And he was. Yeah, he was. He was also very sharp. I'll give you this. I'll give you this, uh, yeah. this story. He used to have quota boards at the show. Yeah. Um, milk quota in the shape of a cow and sheep and beef quota in the shape of um, a sheep. And he'd chalk up the prices, you know, uh, 50,000 litres of milk quota at 3.9% butterfat. And the farmers would, would come and they'd stand like 10 yards away looking at the boards and pondering. And then they'd walk off and they'd come back. And, and um, when he got a good crowd and the market was flat, nothing would excite the farmer more than when he rubbed out the prices and put some new prices in. <laughs> like when when he rubbed out the prices, they were like flipping out the prices moving. <laughs> so when nothing was happening, what he used to do, he used to rub it out and put exactly the same prices back. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he used to create a massive amount of interest oh. on the stand and, and go again. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. What a show, man. Yeah. Sorry, um, anyway, yeah, reminiscing. John, was there anything that you particularly remember about him personally? I know, I know, we've talked about how straight he was and and some of his obviously humour, but is there anything that particularly you remember about him? Yeah, well, obviously the football, I, you know that 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 is definitely part of Ian, you know, and he he did look a little bit like a rough rough bugger when he, you know, <laughs> in terms of when he turned up at the. The uh, opposition end, you know, he 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 fit in with the old England supporters very very well, <laughs> you know. So 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 there was that bit. Uh, I I I guess the bits I also remember though is, is that he actually and 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 I know we we'll just finish on the quote a bit because I know a lot of people didn't like him because they saw him as a success and he made money out of quotas. Well, good for him. That's all I. And if you don't like people who are successful, you've got a problem. It's your problem. It's not theirs. And uh, but when when he actually when the quota market went, he was very robust and he was very actually committed to the industry. And he didn't just walk off the pitch and just deal with his farm or whatever. And he did loads of travelling, by the way, with Carol and the family. Uh, he, he he actually would um, he actually got involved and recreated another business, and that wasn't easy. Uh, because actually, you know, he got a lot of staff in his business. He was conscientious about them. And uh, I, and those are the things I remember, is that he had a commitment to the industry and he spoke straight and he spoke for the farmers that sometimes weren't always heard. So yeah. I, I I think that, you know, he never lost that commitment to the industry. Is that fair, Chris? Yeah, you? very much, very much. He was very committed to keeping his staff in in work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don, Ian was also known, and we have touched on this already, but he's, he was known for his sense and ability to challenge, which sometimes resulted in quite difficult conversations. Do you have memories of, of that side of him? Yeah. And, and and the thing is about Ian and Chris, again, is just because you knew him, 
And just because you actually him personally, don't think that would do you any favours if you picked up the phone and that you would actually somehow be able to wheedle your way around him and get him to speak, not say something about you or say something that was nice about you. He, he didn't work like that. He, he was a little bit like the Barry Wilsons of this world. You know, he would say it straight and he would say, well, Johnny, if that's what you've said, that's what you've said. And I'm not going to, you know, yeah, he'd keep a confidence. But if, if, if there was something that publicly he needed to say and you wanted to try and bend it another way, he wouldn't do that. He'd just say it straight as it is. Mm-hmm. We had exactly that conversation in the brief this week, didn't we, about yeah, you know, we did. the, the, there were no favours. <laughs> I've known him shot really good mates. When when he found out one of his good mates was having a fling, that went in his bulletin. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> <laughs> That's about mine. <laughs> oh, let's take that out of the edit. <laughs> I don't want Dell on the phone. Thank you very much. Yes, I know. I'm going to get into trouble now. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think, I think the thing I would say, and, and perhaps it, 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 yeah, I'd be interested in Chris's comment is that the, the, the Ian was a classic, or he did migrate into journalism, and he spoke very straight and dairy farmer pieces and all of that. And I'm not, and I and I know we joked about the older generation known from the quote days, and would the other, would the younger generation know? I, I'm not so sure now. The world and the journalistic world he's in now, in terms of that straight talking persona, if that exists going forward. And I and I, and I was talking to Becky about this earlier this week. You know, it is are, are, are the characters like Ian? Are they going to emerge in social media or in other ways? I don't I don't think uh, the platform is there for that to happen and I think what's happening with certainly with agricultural journalism is there are there are a lot of good journalists out there there's no question about that but a lot but they're generalists so they'll be writing about dairy today and beef tomorrow and tomato shortages the next day and then I don't know tax or um tenancies and news they they're all general they're all generalists they're not specialists so we don't have specialists coming through in the industry to replace the likes of barry wilson and 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 ian you know in terms of the the milk the dairy journalists you know there's catherine pace there's me there's stephen bradley who you know is is by far the best on on milk prices but Stephen's a specialist within a specialist industry. And there aren't people like us coming through the ranks. And I do it's, I do worry about that. It's quite a nuance, isn't it? Because it, the, the, it's almost two-pronged. It's the analysis bit and then the journalism bit. And, and you created your craft or refined your craft when um you know, when all that market analysis stuff was going on and when, you know, the, the, the weekly landing of the newsletter or the um, paper was, you know, was the source of information. The challenge now is information's readily available. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, just on that, John, I mean, how important do you think Ian's journalism was when it came to actually advancing um, dairy as an industry? 
Well, we talked about the fact, I, I do, I genuinely think he played a role in the quota piece, which Chris alluded to, and, and that was a very positive role because we, we, we as a country were able to adapt better than our European competitors, uh, for better or for worse. And I think actually that did help the UK dairy industry, although people would, would argue with that. It, he, he, it, once you went past the quota piece, then into the world we've existed in for the last five, 10, 15 years, where Ian would be a commentator on markets, he was actually very good in terms of being fairly straight talking about markets and about what was going on. And, and, and I think actually, you know, we went through a lot of deregulation, but Ian would speak truth. He would speak truth onto people in terms of what he thought. And I, 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 by the way, I wouldn't always agree with him. I don't think he he get he got gets everything right, but he always had a view, and he had a view that he would express. And I think that that has actually helped the dairy industry in the UK um, in terms of adapting to all the market changes that we've seen coming through. Yeah, Chris, you knew Ian in his early career. How did he change over time? And did he always have that aspect to him of telling people what they didn't want to hear? Well, yeah, I worked pretty much with him from from the start. And he was quite different at the start than, than at the end. For instance, when he put a press release out or made a comment in the press and there was a farmer who wrote in and complained or moaned or uh, said something that Ian didn't agree with or like, he was pretty sensitive and he wanted to know how he could counter that. And he was pretty worried about the impact of negative press on him and his business. And of course, at the end, he couldn't give a monkeys and fully embraced the the mantra, whether it's true or not, that there's no such thing as bad publicity. And I think that's why we didn't really spend too much time on trying to negate the um, some of the stories that were going around at the time, you know, the uh, some of the quota stories, because it was publicity, it was column inches, and it helped to grow his business. And of course, he was very tight as well. Let's not forget, he's a Yorkshireman and he's a Yorkshire farmer, so he's very tight. So he actually didn't want to pay for advertising. So, you know, the more publicity you could get, the better. You probably do have to learn, don't you? If you're going to say the things that need to be said that but but that people don't want to hear, you you you're gonna, you know, you're gonna upset some people. And, you're gonna rattle cages, and then it, mm. yeah, yeah. You have to be independent there, though, don't you, Becky? Because it, it it's and I do advise yes. with a lot of people. If you're an employee of some business, or you're you've got a responsibility to your employees, or you've got you do actually sometimes have to. We all get drawn into actually having to temper what we say and balance things and all of that, which I fully understand and recognise, whereas Ian did give himself the liberation of being his own man. And, yeah. and, and, and a, bit, a bit like you, to be frank, Chris, you know, I would hate to be trying to employ you. You'd be a bugger. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know, you, you, you There's a clear I, decision I mean, to keep you off the books, Chris, is what John's saying. But, but, but that independence, Chris, that you've got, it allows you to speak very br- brutally, doesn't it? It's not very Nobody wants me. <laughs> no, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah what John's... Independence. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you do. Yeah. yeah, definitely something to that. So, Ash, in comparison to Chris and John, you won't have known Ian as long, 
but your lives will have entangled quite a bit over the time you knew each other. What did Ian mean to you and how did he impact on your career? Thank you. Yeah, no, I actually, um, um, I've, I've been working at Arla for 20 years now and uh, I actually got to know Ian very personally when I um, moved into the agricultural job in Arla, which was at the back end of 2010. Um, but my story with Ian actually started a little bit before that. Um, and uh, when I was uh, in my early days in Arla, um, Ian was very much feared uh, as a character um, by by all the so he was this like mythical almost mythical figure and everyone sort of drew breath on a Friday afternoon waiting for the bulletin uh, to, to to come up so I kind of even though I wasn't close to what was going on there in my early years in Arla it, there was this kind of feared character that I kind of built a picture of in my head and then so I always used to read the bulletins and then one one afternoon um, on that bulletin Ian was offering uh or to sell in England football tickets to the first person to sort of email him. So I I did, and uh, <laughs> and I got I bought some football tickets off him, and that that was it. We didn't we didn't have much of an exchange, and then when when I actually was 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 announced um, the, to be doing the agricultural job, he sent me an email to say, "Are you the Ash that bought the football tickets for me a few years ago?" <laughs> and uh, and 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 that began a sort of bit of a conversation with him. Um, where we sort of really connected um, around two areas, really, well, three areas. Firstly, passion for the industry, uh, but secondly, uh, around family and values, because football for him was very much about family and values as well, uh, and and actually football. Um, and the first time I actually physically met him was was in a, in a pub, uh, and I was so nervous in London. I was there's a real ale <laughs> pub. I've got to pick the right sort of pub, real ale pub. Walked in, and the person that I met and spent the next four hours with was not the picture that had been painted uh, for me. Uh, and, and actually, it never really changed from that point on. Um, I would say without a shadow of hesitation, Ian would be one of the most trusted people that I've ever worked with um, in the dairy industry. People will definitely not know this, but on many times when I was kind of in doubt uh, and, and, and grappling with some very challenging, delicate kind of challenges, issues. Um, Ian, I learned over the years, could be someone I could have an off-the-record chat with. And sometimes it was directly work-related and sometimes it was more, you know, family, nothing to do with work. And and Ian always gave sound advice. And most importantly, he never, ever let me down in terms of confidentiality or trust. And, uh, and that might not be obvious to people. He was a mischievous guy, so there's no question about uh, you know taking the opportunity to uh, be mischievous. And I don't know what people remember, but when um, when it was announced I would be doing my job in 2010, um, in in the press release it said something like Arla, um, you know, Ash will execute Arla's plan in the UK on agriculture, and Ian's headline that Friday was Arla finds a new executioner. Um, so that was, that was just, he, he would often sort of put, but, but I always used to sort of find that quite amusing rather than be uh, upset by it. Executioner, brilliant. Um, you, he he dubbed you Arla's Prince Charming as well when you started. Do you remember that? I I do remember that actually, and that, and that and that was a bit of a. At first, I was thinking, oh, I'll, I'll take that. You know, of, of all the <laughs> things you could be called, it's better than execution. I thought, <laughs> um, but but yes, yes, no. You sort of you just, you just had a very very good way with kind of um, 
you know, I, th- I, th- I think humanizing the industry a little mm. bit as well and, and not taking to make sure that we didn't take ourselves too seriously. I, th- I think the other thing that for me, why I respected him, um, and I don't know whether people remember this, but he he probably did this less in terms of branding, but he sort of branded himself in the early days as the voice of the unheard farmer. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah. is actually what he was. You know, he was the voice of the person that doesn't have a voice. Um, and, you know, that maybe was at times also mischievous and 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 and, and sort of, you know, ruffled a few feathers. But I think that's why people trusted him. You know, he, he not not everyone um necessarily would have would have been a fan of Ian's, but I think overall, um, you know, and and sort of just saying this is a bit weird because it's actually quite surreal because I don't actually sort of I can't get my head around you know what's actually happened. Um, so, uh, but yeah, no, no, just um, lots of stories that I probably can't share on the podcast as well. But, uh, <laughs> if, if anyone wants me to take me to that real ale pub at some point in the future, I'll uh, I'll relay some of those stories. <laughs> There's awesome. a huge weight and benefit, isn't there, of having the the grit in the oyster is the terminology we would use within Kite. You know, having having that that you've got to navigate through Ash when you're you know making tricky decisions that affect lots of you know, lots of people, lots of people who we and you and who you care about, you know, you're making decisions in your role that impact an industry that you really care about. And and actually having a, a barometer or somebody who sort of says, well, you know this, or, you know, mm. have you thought about that? That's, um, you know, that's actually hugely beneficial, isn't it? Absolutely, Becky, and, and and I think anyone, all of us, um, regardless of what job job we do, we, we know that we can't operate on our own. So we do need to have people around us who you know see our blind spots notice things that we don't notice and uh and the ones that sort of end up giving us good advice over time are the ones that you know we want to spend our time with and 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 that was in you know so i you know I, i i absolutely saw him um as as a friend and uh and because of that you know i I do feel sad about and obviously Mm -hmm. thoughts are with 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 carol and the family as well um and uh and, and i'm you know hoping that i know there's a date that's been sort of uh, advertised 20, i think 29th of march um a celebration of ian's life so i think I, I hope that you know that's what we are able to do uh on mm. that day i think winding the clock back well before your time arla actually helped to make ian because the arla uk plc you know way before arla co-op days were terrible at dealing with ian and that relates to what you said at the start, Ash. You know, they, would, they wouldn't they would try and have a dialogue with him. They would throw the lawyers at him. And, of course, that was manna from heaven to Ian because it was just more big company against him representing small farmers. Yeah. And I think when you came along, you brought a lot of um, the human touch to Arla and to the relationship you had with Ian and that's why you got on so well yeah 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 absolutely and uh and, and I think that's right and is, isn't that a lesson in life as well uh just generally that uh you know having an open mind and a curiosity um you know it's, it's not always a bad thing um and uh yeah yeah and uh yeah um yeah and it's uh I have to say sort of uh you know um there's not been that many nights out, but there have been some legendary nights out with uh, Ian. So, so, so I think certainly my uh, 
my uh <laughs> sort of drinking buddies my drinking buddies are uh sort of uh uh sort of regretting that as well but uh you know yeah. he's just very very good fun uh everyone's going to want to go to that real l pub with you now well hear, i mean hear, i hear those stories you know, for, for, a, for a fee i'll i'll, I'll post the uh <laughs> post the location <laughs> i seem to recall actually there was a place in london ash not all that long ago in the arches with the piano in the corner that we ended up at the uh, uh, chris, chris was there ian was there you and i it was almost in the territory of what goes on tour stays on I, tour. I think that's the best <laughs> way. I think that's the best way. I think we behaved ourselves. We we did behave <laughs> ourselves, but I, I think it was a we were doing a night shift after the Dairy UK uh, dinner, weren't we? So that's uh, what we're going to call it. We're going to call it a night shift. Well done, Ash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I almost feel guilty for turning the, turning the conversation away because that, that was so so lovely. But um, let's turn briefly to some wider industry issues, if we may. Um, John, we started with you today by talking about milk quotas or constraints on production. Uh, they were removed on the first of April 2015, so you could argue that we haven't had uh, constraints on production since then. But could you argue that we're now getting them back, but in another form, in essence, through environmental constraints here in Wales, for example, it is dominating conversation amongst the farmers I know um, when it comes to MBZs and in the Netherlands and Ireland when it comes to cow numbers. Um, what's your view on that? Yeah, well, first of all, it, thanks, Ash. That was a very eloquent uh, commentary and uh, much appreciated, uh, as we talked about earlier. And, and and certainly, you know, it, it, when we talked, we, we recollected earlier about uh, milk quotas. Then obviously, Ian had a, a major role there as we as we talked about it. And there's no doubt that, you know, we've moved away from constraints uh, on the basis of economic constraints with milk quota uh, and market constraints like that to environmental constraints because we are entering a different era, as Ash might want to comment on. And, and so obviously now we are in that era where milk production around the world, as you've just alluded to, is being constrained by uh, what we can do in terms of the environment. And, and, and I'm, I'm not sure that that would create the, the situation where we've created people like Ian in the past, uh, who actually, you know, as we talked about earlier, booked the trend, created markets, did, did lots of things. Uh, I, I guess there is sale of quota and sale of assets. I think in in the Netherlands uh, for 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 phosphates or whatever. So I'm, I make no doubt there's there's those sorts of there's those sorts of markets. But I'm not really seeing that sort of uh, market develop in the UK at present. And um, you know, I, and, and and thereby creating opportunities for people like Ian to come along and disrupt the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, Ash, is, is Arla worried at all about potential constraints on milk volumes? And, and how are you engaging with decision makers on this issue? Yeah, I, th I think if we look um, um, in, in the long term, um, because, of course, we're, we're experiencing a sort of, a, let's say, a cyclical event now where milk production is, is, is up. You know, only last year milk production was down. Demand is down. So if we just sort of park that for a minute and say, look, that that that's an event happening or a cycle, and we look at the longer term, we do have some concern 
um, about um, you know how regulation uh, we anticipate regulation to unfold and uh, the pressure that that's going to put on uh, our dairy farmers um, and not just all our dairy farmers but but the rest of the industry. And of course, we can see some of that already. And, you know, we've seen it in the Netherlands with you talked about, you know, things coming up in Wales and we know about what's happening in the Republic. So 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 I, th- so I think the um, the message um, that we have for government on this is that um, firstly, that the industry is committed uh, to its re- responsibilities when it comes to climate change and, and the environment. And, and I think the dairy roadmap which many listeners will know about is is a, is a demonstration of how we've started that journey. But the key point here is that the exact place where we want the biggest change to happen, um, primarily because of or needs to happen, primarily because of you know when you and carbon is just one metric, but when you look at carbon, is farm, and 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 that's where we want the most change to happen, and therefore. We need to be super careful about the burden, uh, the additional burden that we're putting on farmers. Um, and actually, what we should be doing is we should be looking with completely different lenses and saying, how can we support farmers? How can we help farmers make the transitions? You know, consumers will talk about it as a green transition. And, uh, and therefore, I think there is risk. And I think if we look at the very longer term, and I think this is a, you know, important statistic to sort of remember the population of the world is is forecast to grow you know up to 10 10 billion and and you know there is a calorie shortage in order to feed that population dairy is in 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 very good health and demand growth globally so broadly two percent growth so people want dairy around the world our predictions are that in the next 20, 30 years, there is going to be a shortfall of supply versus the demand that's out there. And I think that's a really key thing to kind of focus on. Um, I think with respect to our farmers, we're working very hard with our farmers. Of course, we're doing the climate checks. We've got the data, but also helping our farmers via the incentive model that we've got. Um, and we're doing all of that because what we want to do is we want to accelerate Um sort of change uh, but we want to do it in a way that kind of brings our farmers with us uh, and i think that's really important as well okay um we've got to go now but final question uh i'm going to ask you all in turn john ash and then chris um what's your favorite ian potter story that you can tell in the daytime john do you want to go first yeah that um, it, it, we've, we've alluded to football. And, of course, Ash has talked about the fact he was an England fan. Well, unfortunately or fortunately, he was a Derby fan, as I am. And he was brought up in Ashbourne, where I was brought up. So uh, when I was at uh, at uh, Reading for an away match, about must have been 10, 15 years ago, who do I find in the away end at the bar but Ian <laughs> half time? And... Uh, so we we struck we struck up a conversation and Will, my son, was there and he turned around and he said, uh, Oh well, Will, you, Johnny, your dad, he's done all right, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, because uh, of course I was known as Johnny around in Ashbourne. So 
<laughs> it was uh, being talked to uh, like that, uh, but, but I was I do recollect that he, he's a very 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 decent guy. Ash, Ash, Ash will ask you then if you if you haven't already I'm covered just, it. I'm just trying to think which, which story is not X-rated. That, <laughs> there's, there's, there's 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 not a lot of X-rated stories, and I, and I'm going to actually share a really emotional one with you, um, which is which is not a funny anecdote or anything like that, but. Um, in, in February of 2022, uh, I was asked to deliver the uh, City Food Lecture at the Guildhall um, in the City of London. And um, it was a big gig for me, probably the biggest gig uh, that I've kind of, one of the biggest gigs that I've done. So it was very nerve wracking if anyone's been to the Guildhall just as a venue. And uh, just to put more pressure on myself, I invited my parents and, um, and, uh, and, Ian wasn't going to come, <laughs> but when he found out that my dad was going to come and I talked to Ian about my dad, you know, because I've been following World Cups with Iran with my dad and my family for for, for, for quite a sort of few years. And Ian has just been brilliant and always interested. And Ian sort of said to me, I'm not really coming down to see you speak, but I really want to meet your dad. And uh, And it was such a touching <laughs> moment. They had about a fifteen-minute conversation. You know, never met each other. My dad's in his eighties, and you know, it's a testament to him as well um, that you know I, I had to literally drag them up because yeah, we had to sort of leave. But I'm sure they could have uh, carried on talking. So you know, it was just really nice of Ian to come down and and sort of introduce himself to my uh, to my parents. That's so lovely. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> really nice. Um, Chris, can you follow that one? No. Well, I think I've got I've got a, I've got a couple. Uh, I think professionally, sure, sure you've got a few. <laughs> I've got a lot. Yeah. Um, professionally, it has to be. I think the Man United and Steve Davis quota rumor as a story in the dairy industry. It's it's the biggest rural myth there's ever been that Manchester United and Steve Davis, the the quote the the snooker player were big quota traders and i don't know where the rumor came from i think it i think it came from fergal who used to work at potters and he's now at, at cmax he made a quip in ireland and it spread like wildfire around the industry this is before social media <laughs> and this 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 myth remains to this day and i think it's the biggest uh and first and biggest bit of fake news in the industry that was impossible to kill off it made it to the house of commons if you google it it's still on it's still on google and i even uh, wrote to the chairman of manchester united a formal letter um asking them to deny the rumor that this Another is the of- you boys you ferg blooming potter you can get yourselves into some sticky situations can't you (laughs) yeah yeah those were the days but I think this little story really does explain a lot about Ian and his character and his business and he was he he used to sell people's milk quota when they were giving up and he got a cartoonist to do a image a cartoon of a dairy farmer with the milk churns going out one side of the gate and golf clubs coming in and it was new era farm and he used to hand write this card for everybody who was giving up in the industry a note thanking them for their business 
hand wrote to every single one. And I think that's testament to the character of the bloke. And I think mm. we're all on this show simply to say thanks, Ian, for what you've done. Thank you for your business over the last 30-odd years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that has come across throughout this interview. Um, I'm sure we could talk about Ian all day, but that's all we have time for. But a big thank you to our guests today, John Allen, Asha Miramadi, Chris Walkland, and podcast producer Becky Leach. Thank you very much for listening. Please see the show notes for more information, including our podcast disclaimer. We'll be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye from all of us here.